Like it or not, politics has taken center stage in our lives over the last year, and cannabis policy is one area where national lawmakers can and should take action to shake up the status quo. Tahir Johnson, head of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the National Cannabis Industry Association, is our guest for this episode. We talk about the recent transition in Washington, D.C., where he has had a front row seat. He is also an active participant in driving social change as the cannabis industry begins to grow up. If you're curious about the future of the cannabis business in the United States and how social equity is going to be a big part of this, you'll like this episode. If you like the podcast, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or your favorite podcast player, and please leave a review so other people can find the show. Thanks to our producer, Danny, in Milwaukee, and here's my interview with Tahir Johnson. Cannabis is booming, and Cannaboom is on it. Welcome to the Cannaboom Podcast, where we interview experts on the changing story of humans, health, and hemp. From San Diego, here's your host, Tom Stacy. Hey, it's Tom. Welcome back to Cannaboom, the podcast. This week, we have Tahir Johnson, Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the National Cannabis Industry Association. Hey, Tahir. Hey, hey. What's going on, man? How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You're in D.C., and there's been stuff happening there for the last few weeks. Oh, man. It's, it's definitely been a little crazy here, to say the least, in, in D.C. Um, you know, we got rid of the old president, got a new one. Um, and the vice president, Kamala Harris, is from my beloved alma mater, Howard University. So, um, you know, we're in a, I'm loving, I'm happy right now. That's great. And the new poet, uh, Amanda, went to Howard too, right? Absolutely. You know, there's a there's a lot of talent at Howard. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll say Howard's a place that's always gotten a lot of recognition. But I think that, you know, people are really seeing now um, the value of HBCUs. I think it's one of those things I heard somebody say recently um, that a lot of why people like to send their kids to Harvard or Yale is because you say, hey, you never know, the, the next president um, might come from there. And I'll say that that now we have to say that Howard University is part of that conversation, too. So I, I love it. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. What a moment. That's great. Um, well, hopefully things settle down there. I mean, uh, the last few Wednesdays have been a little crazy. Yeah, they have. I was actually um, out of the Capitol um, like, because our office is about a block from the Capitol. So I was, the, the day of the insurrection, I was actually there at the office. And it was it was scary, man. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I felt scared just being outside just because, I mean, I didn't know what some of those people's intentions might be. And if, I mean, in all honesty, where they if they might see me and as a black guy and want to do something bad. So. Oh, it was a scary day. I mean, I'm in California and I, I couldn't believe the way it unfolded, but thankfully it was, it was contained and uh, hopefully we take the right steps to make sure it never happens again. Absolutely. And it, it really is interesting. You know, I think it, it does say a lot about, um, you know, where we are, like kind of as a state in the country, but hopefully now as things are changing, we can move forward. Um, you know, like I said, just just seeing people out there in actual like people that were out there in military gear, like face masks, bulletproof vests, like helmets, like things you normally don't see. And you saw less um, police presence than you see on a normal day around the Capitol. So, you know, it was it was somewhat, I'll say, strange. But thankfully, you know, now we're here in 2021. I think it's important that we do um, unite um, the country and that, you know, we can move forward and and try to have some good policies, not only in cannabis, but as people where we can, um, you know, just, just stand for what America is supposed to stand for as, as values and as a country. Amen. One more quick question. Were you around for the fireworks on inauguration night? I wasn't. So in, in the day of inauguration, last week, I actually, my family and I, we um, spent, we rented a cabin and we spent the weekend, the Poconos in Pennsylvania. So 
we got out of the city. So I was just kind of, um, you know, hanging out in a, in a log cabin in the cold in the snow last week. So I, I missed it. Yeah, those those fireworks just impressed the hell out of me. I, I couldn't believe how long they went, and uh, they were spectacular. Oh yeah, DC definitely does good fireworks shows. I've um I've actually gone out to when they do them on you know Fourth of July down on the National Mall. Um, you know it, it's it's really good. It's it's dope. That's one of the things that I've always um you know love about being in DC. Just you know when there's events like this, you really get to see it firsthand. Oh yeah, front row. Tell us about the National Cannabis Industry Association, your history and mission and all of that. Absolutely. So the National Cannabis Industry is the oldest and largest trade association in the country. Um, last year in 2020, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary, and we have about 2,000 members all across the country from every sector of the industry, whether it's the plant-touching businesses like cultivators, dispensaries, manufacturers, or the other um, people that provide services to the industry, whether it's marketing folks or lawyers or podcasters or marketing people. We really provide, um, you know, we do two things. I'll say first is a B2B network where um, where members can connect with each other to promote and do business with each other. But then really the part that's most powerful is our, um, you know, our policy and government relations work. So, um, you know, NCIA, we, we lobby for federal policy reform, um, everything from Safe Banking Act to the MORE Act. And as, um, as people know, we've had a lot of success over, especially recently in the past two years, where we've seen the MORE Act um, passed through the House of Representatives. Um, we saw the Safe Banking Act also pass in the House. Um, but then we've seen, um, we've seen safe banking um, be, even be included in the coronavirus relief packages. Um, and then even I'll say, especially last year in 2020, as we went into, um, you know, the world kind of focused on coronavirus, where we saw that cannabis remained essential um, and cannabis businesses were operating and open. And now, even as we're having a conversation on how uh, we can fix the economy, I think a huge part of the conversation is how cannabis tax revenue can can help with that. So it's all a lot of exciting things happening. Would you say you guys are lobbyists? We all know the liquor industry has a huge lobby. Does the cannabis industry have that kind of representation now? Absolutely. So we have three full-time lobbyists on our staff that um, lobby on cannabis full-time. And um, I believe we are the first organization to have that. Well, that's how you know you've arrived is when you have lobbyists. <laughs> um, so thank you for doing that on, on behalf of the industry. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure. And it's, you know, like I said, it, for me, as somebody who really loves politics, um, you know, getting to have these conversations and see where cannabis is finally on this level and being taken seriously um, and, you know, really being at the cusp of legalization is certainly exciting to be a part of that. I've heard the word cannabis caucus. Is that for real or is that like a hopeful thing? You know, we're at a we're at an interesting place, Tom. You know, almost 70 percent of Americans have said that they approve of cannabis. So we're at a place now where I think politicians recognize that, hey, cannabis, to be honest with you, is the only bipartisan issue in the world where we saw so much infighting and Washington not really being able to agree on anything. Cannabis is something that um, that, again, all sides of the party um, seem to understand that this, you know, this is where the world's going. Yeah, there's still some opposition, but I think it makes so much sense, right? I mean, economically, socially. Do you guys represent hemp too, or more just cannabis? Oh yeah, so cannabis, as in um, as in the entire industry, um, hemp included. 
we've actually done a lot of work on hemp policy as well. Um, so yes, that's the area that NCIA covers as well. And then let's talk about your specific role in terms of diversity and, and equity and inclusion. Why is that such a big thing in cannabis? Sure. So um, I'll start. I'll answer that question by starting out with um, the number four. And the reason that's significant is because when you look at cannabis businesses across the country, there's less than 4% ownership of African-Americans um, and Hispanics. Um, but there's also, if you look at the other side of that, they're almost four times as likely, um, and the exact number is about 3.6% times as likely to be arrested for cannabis. So we have an industry where, if you look at it, that's been traditionally illegal. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry projected to do $24 billion in revenue in the U.S. in this year alone. And those same people that were prosecuted and, um, you know, jailed and, and their lives destroyed, by and large, don't have an opportunity to participate in the industry. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, social equity, um, making sure that not only people of color, but women, veterans, people with disabilities, um, you know, all have an opportunity to participate in this industry. And it's important that we don't re, um, repeat the mistakes of, you know, corporate America, where we see C-suites of, um, you know, just white men. Um, and that we, because diversity, you know, not only is it for the good of, of people, but from a business sense, it also makes business sense. By having that different perspective, um, having people that can relate with your customer base, having people that can give alternate opinions when decisions are being made just goes such a long way and is so valuable to business. How much resistance to that do you see? I mean, we all re recall affirmative action. There was a lot of resistance. There still is. Well, you know, there's there's certainly resistance to it. I think a, a good example of that is in, in Massachusetts. Um, just this week, we saw it play out in real time where um, an association um, that that's a Massachusetts based that um, of that's existing operators, they actually sued um, the the commission in Massachusetts to try to stop them from um, issuing for so in Massachusetts they were given preference to um, social equity applicants for delivery licenses and this association sued to try to stop that and they they got such a big backlash from the community that they had to drop the lawsuit. Um, so, you know, you, we're definitely still seeing opposition, but I think in the court of public opinion, if you will, people by and large realize that it's time to um, repair the damages of the war on drugs. Right. Now, do you guys work the public relations channel as well as the legislative channel? Um, yes. Yeah, so we have a we have a media and um, a media and communications team as well. Um, so, yes, we do. We focus on um, traditional media. Um, digital media, all those, um, you know, all those channels of communication also. And the message is, is one of equity and inclusion. And um, how do you tell that story? Well, you know, really, it's about making sure that we can have a fair and prosperous cannabis industry for all. Um, you know, whether, again, whether that's whether you're black, white, man, woman, disabled um, or a veteran, um, the industry can be more prosperous and successful when, when everybody's successful together. To hear, how big is the cannabis opportunity for our economy? Um, well, according to New Frontier data um, for 2021, they're projecting that the cannabis industry will bring in $24 billion in annual revenue this year alone um, in the U.S. So it's, it's very much projected to grow. If you look at some other industries, I think right now today, you'll see that the cannabis industry is already pulling in more money than the video game industry. 
They already make more annual revenue than the recorded music industry, um, the wine industry, and, and a number of other ones. So, you know, cannabis revenue is growing and it's, it's definitely here to stay. Well, and we know for sure that cities are looking at that as possible tax revenue. Is that a determining factor at the federal level as well? Absolutely, because right now, due to cannabis's federally illegal status, it's not taxed and um, regulated at the federal level. So, of course, um, I'm sure that as they think of legalization, it, you know, I can't say that I know that. <laughs> I can't say that I know that it's the major motivation, but you would think naturally that, you know, that it's on the mind of anyone thinking about it. Sure. Can you tell us about some of the wins you've had thus far? Um, sure. I'll say one of the one of the biggest wins that I've had personally um, is with NCIA's program. Like I said, we have over 100 um, social equity operators and applicants that are in the program. And what is what is done is remove the financial barrier of access to the organization um, to be able to create a community. Um, so I'm really happy about, um, you know, being able to do that, um, being able to do it within an organization. You know, as you as you look at the cannabis industry, historically, it had, like I said, it hasn't been diverse. So to be able to make a real impact and change here has certainly been something that um, that I'm proud of, um, even more so than just bringing these people into the organization, though. One of the things that I'm proud of is the way we've been able to increase diversity at really all levels of the organization from our member-led committees, um, you know, people of all diverse backgrounds adding their expertise. But then also for me, something I was really proud of was helping um, with our board of directors. Um, so now um, increasing diversity on the board, again, because for the same reasons, I think that perspective just adds so much value to where we can go as an organization. And then as we talk about being with an organization that lobbies for um, federal cannabis policy, I think it's important that our voice does represent, um, you know, and is really broad and represents people from all backgrounds. Um, you know, so I think that that's, um, like I said, I'm really proud of, at the work that's been done to um, increase diversity, not only internally, but really do it in an impactful way um, where hopefully we are seeing the needle move across the industry. Well, you mentioned personnel and kind of hiring. Is that generally voluntary? I mean, at this point, there's not laws in place, but do you find that companies are kind of stepping up and saying, well, yeah, we, we want to have a social equity program, a component? Um, well, you know, there, there, are a num there are a number of companies that do have um, great social equity programs. Um, you know, Cresco, um, they have the seed program. Companies like Cookies are largely focused on social equity. Um, Viola, um, they they're on a they. Um, Al Harrington said that he wants to make a hundred um, black millionaires through cannabis. Um, companies like Curaleaf have done work to support diversity. Um, you know, again, we 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 definitely see it, um, and there's a movement. But it's it's one of those things where um, you know we could all we could always see more. Um, but you know, especially as as more states are legalizing. We see now where people are recognizing the need to get it right from the beginning and make sure that there's a social equity program coming out of the gate. Because what, what happens alternatively is you could use a, a state like Denver as an example, where they're, um, you know, their first adult use market has been established for years now, and they're just coming back and establishing a social equity program this year. So you have a situation where um, you have a mature market. Um, you know, businesses that now have a true competitive advantage years on any new entrance. Again, I think there's so much value to, you know, having companies support um, other social equity businesses that want to get into the game, but then also, again, just having good policy 
that makes it, um, you know, that that is inclusive um, and helps to create a framework for an equitable industry. It all starts there. Well, and as we already mentioned, there's a sort of a PR aspect to this as well, where you can say, hey, I'm this corporation is being a, a good citizen. We have a social equity program. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've seen, um, you know, in terms of PR and support, I'm definitely thankful to the companies that we have that have supported our um, program. We've had um, companies like Forefront um, sponsored our social equity program. Um, Copper State from out in Arizona, they sponsored our program. Um, Greenbridge Corporate Council was a sponsor of our um, social equity program. So people are putting dollars behind and making a commitment um, behind this. And I think that's what you have to see. I think one of the things that we learned last year is that we're at a time and a place where it's not enough nowadays just to post an Instagram post or a Facebook post or say that you support something. People actually want to see that you are, um, you know, doing the work and have some teeth behind um, some of these messages. And then also, you know, that you are, again, not only, um, you know, as a company, not only what type of programs do you have, but what 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 type of policies are you lobbying for? Um, what does your staff look like at the executive level? And what are your hiring practices look like? All of these things are important and a part of the same conversation. Right. In marketing, you see more of that. You look at a company like Patagonia, who has taken a stand on things, and maybe that's more of a model now. You mentioned some big companies there, Cresco and, and Curaleaf. They're big companies. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, again, like, you know, I think it's, it's not just about <clears throat> the PR, but, um, you know, when you do good, um, I'm a strong believer of that, you know, doing right by people, treating people the way you want to be treated, the universe um, returns that. So, again, I think that corporate social responsibility <clears throat> isn't just a buzzword, it's something that um, that actually can improve your company. And, you know, one of the things that we did last year to try to um, to try to make sure that we could have some accountability on this is that we actually um, partnered with um, our friends, my friends from an organization called Can Inclusive that put out last year something that's called the accountability list. And what the accountability list calls for is for organizations to report their um, diversity metrics and make a commitment towards um, having diversity. And, you know, we were able to actually establish that um, across our organization and kind of set some standards for, you know, what companies should be working towards for diversity. So that was important also. That's great to begin to have a benchmark. So it's objective data. It's not just someone talking the talk, right? Absolutely. Yeah. How about at the community level? I think you mentioned when we were talking about wins, removing financial barriers. Are those grants or does that mean you're helping the little guy as well as some of these bigger corporations? Um, so what it means is, so to become a member of NCIA, our, um, our entry-level memberships typically start off at $1,000 per year or $100 per month. Um, and when you think of, of course, all businesses you know these days are strapped and tight on cash. But when you think about people that come from disadvantaged communities, um, you know, not only do they not have money to get into the business and get all of those resources, but paying a, you know, professional dues and membership for an organization at $100 a month or $1,000 a year <clears throat> could be extremely challenging. Um, you know, my first year at NCIA, as I was traveling around the country to different um, cannabis, meeting different cannabis business people in all different types of venues, one of the things that I consistently heard 
from that community was that, hey, you know, we would love to be a part of NCIA. You know, we understand the value, but I don't have a thousand dollars a year to, you know, invest in that. Um, so once by removing that barrier, we saw um, increased participation in the organization. Um, but, you know, I'll say more than that, it, it, it took a, you know, a culture shift and a culture change um, and, you know, and really making this real. Because, again, we don't want to just say, um, you know, we don't want to just say we have a, you know, we don't want to just say we have a program for the sake of doing it for the PR. We want it to really be impactful um, and, you know, having the education behind it having the resources, having people be able to um, come in and say that they feel better prepared um, to pursue the opportunity than they did for a number of different reasons, um, you know, really is the goal. And, and that starts with, I'll say using my personal example, um, one of my first interactions with the NCI before I worked for the organization, I actually had won a scholarship to attend our conference, um, the Cannabis Business Summit. Um, and one of the things that I knew um, that I experienced personally, I was like, wow, you know, I was so excited. Like I got the ticket to attend the conference. But then I started thinking like, wow, how am I going to get there? What are the travel fees? Where am I going to stay? You know, all those different things. And, you know, the costs add up. So we just want to try to help out. You know, I know it doesn't, you know, taking away the uh, having the dues for a thousand dollar membership doesn't change the world. But what it does do is set an example I'm out there in the industry and I've seen more social equity programs um, that are similar to ours arise um, afterwards, which I think is a great thing. Um, you know, we need to see more of it. And again, like I said, just removing that barrier now by people not having to pay a thousand dollars, they can get into an organization where they may meet other people that provide services and other potential partners and and learn about policy and, you know, so many different things to help give them a leg up. Well, a lot of us have been dreaming for a long time about federal decriminalization, deschedulization. And with this administration, our hopes are, are pretty high again. What do you think about what could happen over the next four years? Oh, well, you know, when you look at the um, current position of the president, um, you know, he he, at least in the election, he wasn't as far along where he was um, for like full legalization. But I think one thing that does um, say a lot is Kamala Harris being the vice president. Of course, she was the sponsor of the Moore Act in the Senate, um, and she's been very vocal about, um, you know, her stance on legalization. Um, my personal, um, my per, me personally, Tahir Johnson. This isn't necessarily the perspective of the organization, but I would be I would be very surprised if we didn't see like you asked about in five years. I would personally be surprised if we were if cannabis was not fully legalized um, within the next five years. I, I'll say I actually personally think it will be sooner on the sooner end of the spectrum, um, you know. But we'll we'll see where it goes. You're there at ground zero of this. So what what are the biggest obstacles that you see? Um, well, the biggest obstacles to um, you know legalization is you know we still have to. Um, if you look at the way the Senate is now, we have um, it's the the tiebreaker vote is with Kamala Harris. But um, you know, in, in terms of moving towards legalization and getting more people on board, um, you know, again, public perception is improving, but we have to look at how um, you know, in terms of if we do legalize it, we have to say what is the regulatory structure going to be like? 
Um, another obstacle is making sure that if we do legalize that this, that the industry continues to be equitable, that we're not going to legalize it and do it in a way where we still have these barriers where certain people can't participate. I think another thing is, um, you know, just making sure that looking at the existing structure that when we do legalize it, that we don't disrupt the businesses and markets that already exist. Um, you know, because of course, um, now as it's legalized, you have other um, people that are on the outside looking in that will um, want to pursue cannabis as well. So I think balancing all those things and how do we create the structure, you know, not just legalizing it, but what does legalization really even mean or look like, I think is an important part to consider as well, because there's so many things that can, you know, once we start talking about federally illegal, um, you know, interstate commerce comes into play and, you know, so many other things that we just haven't gotten to yet. And those are some of the things that um, NCIA is working on. That's so right. I mean, it could be, there's so many little pieces to this. I mean, in California, we know we were real happy to become adult legal here after being medically legal, but there's still a lot of things that need fixing. I mean, the, the tax structure here encourages the legacy market to hang around and there's there's a lot of pieces to it, right? Absolutely. And, you know, one example, I think that's like to the point that you just made in California um, now is, and I'll use oranges as an example, right? Now is, now cannabis is federally illegal, but if you wanted to, um, grow oranges, you would probably have your orange farm, your orange farm in Florida. Um, you know, because for a lot of economic reasons and, you know, you would see, if you think about the way the supply chain will work, you know, when we buy our orange juice, it comes from Florida as opposed to cannabis now. Um, you have people in different markets and we have markets established in other states. So now that it's legalized, do people still grow cannabis in New Jersey or do they get it um, shipped in from California where they can grow outdoors at lower cost and have quality and, you know, have established brands? You know, all of these things are, you know, things that really are going to be conversations that have to be all, um, you know, sorted out. Right. And I've heard lawmaking is like sausage making. You don't really want to see it. There are vested interests and this is a, a new market. So there's a lot of uh, maybe compromises that have to be made. Absolutely. It goes with the territory. To hear, I ask all my guests, do you have a favorite cannabis product or service? Favorite cannabis product or service. So I'm, I'm a flower guy. Um, you know, I, I definitely um, cons- like that's my main way of consumption. Um, you know, I really love um, technology. So I love, um, cannabis tech, um, like Leafly, Weed Maps, those types of companies are, are super cool. Um, that was actually one of the things when I first got into the industry, you know, as I was looking at it, um, you know, I, I think that that plays a major part of it. And, um, yeah, man, I had the opportunity to interview the CEO of Leafly on my podcast the other day. So that was um, a pretty cool experience. Nice. That's a win. Do you like to use a vaporizer or, or do you combust? Yeah, I'm, I'm combust. I, I, um, what I do is I get like, I buy like a 75 pack of raw cones from Amazon and I got those on monthly, um, delivery. So <laughs> I try, I try to make it through the month with the, with my cones, but Mostly I don't, so maybe that means I smoke too much. <laughs> That's leveraging technology and um, old school at the same time. Absolutely, it's on every my everything's on monthly subscription from Amazon. That's smart. That's nice. Let me ask if you have a favorite strain. My favorite strain. Um, so here in Maryland, 
Um, my favorite strain is one called Garlic Cookies, man. It's, it's by um, Grassroots. I, I love the way it smells. I love the way it tastes, and it's, um, it's strong. Is that on the sativa side or indica side? It's a hybrid, but I would say it's an indica-leaning um, indica hybrid. It's just one of those ones that can put you down. Nice. And sometimes we need help sleeping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here, is there anything we haven't covered that we should? Um, no, not that I could think of. It's definitely been a, a pleasure getting together with you. Um, you know, for folks out there listening, you know, it's, if you're as you're thinking about the cannabis industry, again, I think that it's important to, um, you know, you see it. We all see the numbers and the statistics talking about how much money the cannabis industry can and will make. But uh, again, I think that keeping conscious capitalism in mind, making sure that as we're building this pro- this industry, like I said, we make it prosperous and inclusive and equitable for all. You know, I think that's something um, that that really needs to remain a focus. Um, and then from social equity, if we we get it right the first time, then we don't have to go back and try to repair and create programs. I definitely believe that that is the, um, you know, that's the way to go. Only thing I'll say for, you know, for folks that want to um, find me, definitely check out my um, my podcast, The Cannabis Diversity Report. It's on all platforms. You know, I'm, I'm having these conversations um, with really a lot of the leading um, leading people that are experts on these, these topics from all different areas. Um, so it's dope. We'll look for that. We'll put a, a link in the show notes. And uh, I'm just thinking um, in terms of our audience and if they want to support social equity efforts, we all vote with our wallets, right? We, so we maybe we keep an eye out for companies who are aligned with these values. Absolutely. And I'll say that's that's one thing that we absolutely should do with cannabis. You um, and man, you said it so well. You know, you should support the causes that you want. Um, not, you know, with your dollars, you can you can go on and, and support um, minority owned cannabis brands. You can support women owned cannabis brands. Um, and, I, and I think that that's really important. But then also not just the brands, but the organizations that are doing the work. Um, so, you know, at NCIA, we have a sponsorship program. If anyone's interested, um, please um, feel free to reach out to me um, directly. You can call me, email me. Uh, my email is my name, TahiraTheCannabisIndustry.org, if you want to sponsor. But then also other organizations that, that you should look at. The Minority Cannabis Business Association is doing great work on um, leading the fight. Minorities for Medical Marijuana, um, Supernova Women, um, man, I mean, the list is so long, like of people across the country that are doing this uh, uplift um, here in Maryland. Um, you know, again, I think that there, there are organizations that if you want to support, um, you know, you definitely can. Well, you're in the middle of that movement, and I'm really glad we were able to get you for, for half an hour and, uh, and your kids, too. <laughs> yeah, man, um, I appreciate it. You know, it's like you said, it's working from home has definitely been a challenge. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to carve out 30 minutes away from them. We're all here in the house social distancing together. But one of the things that I do really love is that, um, you know, my kids are, are living this, seeing this with me firsthand. Like they've gotten to meet so many cool people in the cannabis industry, like, you know, CEOs of large companies, like they're having conversations with them. My oldest daughter is six and she really, really wants to be like a, in business. So just getting to like, get, you know, get some of these gems from people. It's, it's been a great experience. I love it. That's great. Good head start. 
Well, we'll look for you. We'll put the Cannabis Diversity Report on our, our podcast playlist. And uh, thank you again, Tahir, for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Y'all can follow me at Todd Diddy on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Tahir Johnson, my name everywhere else. I'm looking forward to connecting with y'all. Thank you so much for having me a guest on the show. I appreciate being able to tell my story, talk about the stuff I'm working on, and I'm looking forward to, to future collaboration and catching up. Thank you, Tahir. You've been listening to the Cannaboom Podcast with host Tom Stacy. If you like the show and want to know more, please check us out at Cannaboom with a K.com. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next week.